We're going to be in the book of Romans, continuing our study in the book of Romans. It sounds like I'm in a echo chamber. <laughs> echo, echo, echo. Romans chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up. Romans chapter 5, we're looking at verses 12 through 21 this morning. And the title of this morning's message is, Am I in Adam or Am I in Christ? A Contradistinction of Actions. A Contradistinction of Actions. So let's go ahead and stand. We'll read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 together. And we'll see how good you guys' memories are at the end. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is the type of him who is to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many were made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Good job. You may be seated. So Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. To begin a short story, a man is standing before St. Peter, before the pearly gates of heaven, and he's evaluating, and and St. Peter is evaluating this man's life, and he finds that the man's good deeds equal his bad deeds. And so he's kind of in a little conundrum. How can I let this man in when his good deeds and bad deeds are equal? And so he asks the man a question, give me one reason why I should let you in. A man thinks for a moment and then says, there was one time where I saw a woman being dragged from her car into the desert by a whole bunch of hardcore bikers. And so I stopped my car and I ran to save her. And St. Peter says, wow, that's pretty brave. When did you do that? And the man said, about five minutes ago. <laughs> right? So the, the moral of the story is that actions have consequences for good and for bad. And this is what Paul's going to be talking about here this morning, the contradicting actions of Adam and Jesus and the reverberating ramifications of each. I like saying that, the reverberating ramifications 
of each. So when you're correcting your children today, like when they get your discipline, hey, I just want to let you know there's reverberating ramifications for the decision and choice that you made today, right? But in so doing, he's going to answer the question, Paul's going to answer the question of how justification comes. Now, verses 12 through 21 are arguably one of the most difficult and controversial passages to interpret in all of Paul's writings. So I want to thank Roy for letting me teach this passage first. (laughs) It seems that last time it was the whole circumcision passage, right? And now it's this one. In this section, Paul's explaining how it is that all men are sinners. In fact, he spends the first three chapters of the book of Romans building a case that humanity, all of humanity is guilty. There is none righteous, no, not one. That everyone is without excuse. And he ends chapter 3 in verse 23 by saying that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so here in verses 12 through 21, he now begins to explain how it is that through one man's death, the ungodly sinner is made righteous before God. Last week in verses 1 through 11, he argued that the hope of believers is secure by virtue of the person and finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And we looked at six benefits of our justification last week. And so if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 5, we see the first benefit, therefore having been justified by faith. Number one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 15 tells us that one time we were at enmity with God. And that word enmity means it has a picture of, of an entire battalion or army who is clothed in battle arraignment, ready to wage war against their opponent. And Ephesians 2 verse 15 tells us that that's us, that we are clothed in battle arraignment, ready to wage war against God. That's who we used to be. And Paul tells us here that through the justification that we receive through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, that now instead of being at war with God, now we have peace with God right? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, he tells us in verse 2, through whom, through Jesus, also we have access by faith. In in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, once we were separated from him, now we've been brought near to him. Hebrews tells us the same thing in chapter 4, verse 16. So now we have access, whereas once we were at war, once we were separated, now we have access to be able to come into his presence. Hebrews 4 tells us that we can come into his presence with boldness, with confidence, knowing that in that place we'll find grace and help in time of need. So the first two uh, benefits, peace, access is the second one. And the third one is, also at the end of verse 2, that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. One of our questions this week in our home group is, how important is it to think about the future, to think about glory? How important is it in our prayer life? It was interesting that we were just going around and Grandma Barb was sharing her perspective of, of glory and what it means to her and what she's looking forward to. And I think that many of us forget so often that this world is not our home right? That we're just pilgrims passing through here, but we have a destination. We're on a trajectory. There is a place that we're going and we're going to glory. Amen. And so to think about those things, to have our minds set on that, Paul would say that, hey, these present troubles, these present difficulties, they pale in comparison to what is to come. Amen. 
And so that's the third benefit that we see. So peace, access, rejoice in the hope of glory. And the third one, or the fourth one is interesting. Verse three, he tells us this, because our destination, our future is glory, God on this side of heaven is preparing us for glory. And he has, in his sovereignty, in his omniscience, in his, in his complete wisdom, he has seen that the greatest tool he can use to prepare us for glory is having us go through the furnace of affliction. Forming us, um, molding us on the anvil of trial and tribulation. And so he says, hey, here's the thing. Not only do we have peace, not only do we have access, not only do we rejoice in the glory uh, to come, but we rejoice in tribulation knowing that God's hand is upon our lives and he's producing something in us to prepare us for future, for the already but not yet. And so he says it produces perseverance, it produces character, it produces hope. And I love what it says in verse five. Now hope does not disappoint because, and I love how he says this, he's reminding us that all these things happen in our lives through the loving and caring heart of God, right? What does Romans 8.28 tell us? For we know that all things work together for good, right? To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Psalms tell us that God is good, right? Jeremiah 29.11 says that his thoughts toward us are not for evil, but for good. And then Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work together for good. It's a circular reasoning. So what does that tell us? That God's good, his purposes in our lives are good. And so he reminds us here that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So those are the first four benefits. The fifth is found in verse nine. He says, much more than, after he's just talked about these four great benefits, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we have been saved from wrath to come. That's a really good benefit, don't you think? <laughs> to be saved from the wrath and judgment of God that is to come upon the world. And then in verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now we're reconciled. I love how John Stott, he summarizes this section. He says, having been both justified, verse 1, and reconciled, verse 11, All of us are enjoying peace with God, standing in grace, rejoicing in present sufferings and future glory, assured of final salvation, and exalting in God through Christ, by whom these blessings have become ours. And so now in verses 12 through 21, Paul begins to contemplate the two greatest threats or powers or enemies that threaten to crush and extinguish the hope of believers, namely sin and death. And he says that these two powers were introduced into the world, into the human race through one man, through one decision. And the consequences of that decision have dominated the human race ever since. You see, Paul believes in the reality of Genesis chapter 3, that there was a very real Adam and a very real Eve. They were real people who actually existed, and these real people, they disobeyed God, and that disobedience has then has had a lasting effect to this present day. And because of that disobedience, real sin has entered into the world, and with that real sin came real consequences, namely death. 
both physically and spiritually. But the hope of believers, Paul tells us, is not dashed by sin and death. And that's the gospel, isn't it? The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ has conquered both powers upon the cross. And when he rose again from the dead, he proved thereby that his impact on history is greater than that of Adam's. Now, the skeptic or the naysayer might protest and say, how is it possible for God to save sinners in the person of Jesus Christ? Now, we understand that somehow Jesus took our place upon the cross, but how was such a substitution possible? And Paul answers that question in this section. And some believe that these verses, verses 12 through 21, are the very heart of the entire letter to the book of, or to the Romans. And so to understand what Paul is saying here, there are a few general truths about this section that we need to understand. First, note the repetition of the little word one. Twelve times Paul uses the word one. And the idea here is that he's trying to show that we, that our, our identification is with Adam or it is with Christ. Secondly, notice the repetition of the word reign. It is used five times in these verses. And Paul has two men in mind, Adam and Christ. And both of them ruled a kingdom. And finally, notice the phrase much more is used or repeated five times in this chapter. And this means that in Jesus Christ, we have gained much more than we ever lost in Adam. So in short, this section is a contrast of the actions of two men, Adam and Christ. Adam was given dominion over the old creation, but he sinned and he lost his kingdom. And because of Adam's sin, Paul tells us that all mankind is now under condemnation and death. Christ, on the other hand, Christ, on the other hand, he um, brought in a new and better kingdom, a new and better creation. And by his obedience upon the cross, he brought in righteousness and justification. Christ not only undid all the damage of Adam's sin, but he accomplished much more. In verses 11, or 1 through, sorry, 11, what is it, 5? 6 through 11. In chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, he tells us that he's accomplished much more in making us sons and daughters of God. And so this comparison of Adam and Jesus, it dominates the entire section. Douglas Moose says this, The universal consequences of Adam's sin are the assumption of Paul's argument and the power of Christ's act to cancel those consequences is the goal. And so that's what Paul is doing here in verses 12 through 21. The power of Christ's act of obedience has overcome Adam's act of disobedience. And that's the great theme of this section. And it also answers the, the skeptic's question of how it is possible for God to save sinners in the person of Jesus Christ. So in 12 minutes, I've just given you uh, an overview of this entire section. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. We're gonna be... <laughs> Let's get into it. Verse 12. He starts off and says, therefore, last week, Rory said, whenever you see that word, what are you supposed to ask? What's it there for? And in this case, it's there as a, as a conclusion of all that Paul has already said and as a natural transition to what comes next. 
Winston Churchill, the prime minister of Great Britain during World War II, was quoted as saying at the end of the war, so many owe so much to so few. And he's talking about the fact of the sacrifice of men and women in order to bring about freedom from the tyranny of the Nazi regime. But Paul then takes that and he twists it a little bit and he says this, so many owe so much to only one person. And Paul's argument is shaped around a general result that comes from a general cause. Specifically, that one man's fateful decision infected all of humanity in perpetuity. The topic of verse 12 is sin and death. And in it, Paul describes three downward steps or deteriorating stages that start from one man's sin and end in all men dying. Timothy Keller refers to this as a three-stage chain reaction. First, he tells us that sin entered the world through one man. Now, Paul isn't so concerned about the origin of evil, but he's more concerned about how it has invaded the world of human beings. And he tells us that it came through one man, Adam, and specifically through his disobedience. So sin has now come into the world through one man. Secondly, death has now entered into the world through sin. As Adam is the door through which sin entered, sin is the door through which death has now entered into the human race. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, it tells us this, that God says he created a beautiful garden for Adam and Eve to, to live in. He says, you can eat from any of the trees that you see except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, you will surely what? Die. Douglas Moo says, death then is due immediately to the sinning of each individual but ultimately to the sin of Adam. For it was Adam's sin that corrupted human nature and made individual sinning an inevitability. So first Paul says that through one man, sin entered the world, right? And through sin came death. And then he says this, thirdly, and then death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, Paul is handling the relation between death and sin. But now he moves from looking at the presence of sin in one man to now looking at the presence of sin in all of humanity. And he says that all have sinned. Death has spread to all men because all have sinned. What does he mean by all have sinned? Well, the verb here is in the aorist form and it means that it points back to a single past event, a single past action in history. Paul is saying that the whole human race sinned in one single past action. William Barclay, the Scottish Bible scholar, said this, if we are to give the errorist tense its full value, and in this argument we must do so, the more precise meaning will be that sin and death entered into the world because all men were guilty of one act of sin. In other words, he's saying that that Adam has represented all of humanity. And as, as their representative, what he did has now been passed on to every single generation from that day until today and beyond. What we're getting into here is what's known as federal headship. 
theological circles is, is called federal headship. And the theory um, is, has been adopted to try and explain uh, the imputation. Remember the word imputation? We talked about this in chapter 4 about a month ago. Remember in chapter 4, verse 3, it says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness or was imputed to him as righteousness. That word is an accounting term. It means to credit to one's account or to deposit or to transfer funds to someone's account. Specifically in this case, how Adam's sin was imputed or transferred to all of his descendants and Christ's righteousness was imputed or transferred to all of those who believe. And so the idea of federal headship involves the teaching that Adam is the first representative of the human race and that Jesus is the second representative of the human race. Now, this is a problem for Americans because we don't like people to represent us whom we haven't chosen for ourselves, do we? Right? I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, he's not my president. He's your president. You may not have voted for him. You may not like him, but he represents the United States. He's, she's not my governor. I didn't vote for her, but she's the governor of Oregon, right? I mean, just she represents you. In this case, you may not have chosen Adam, but guess what? God did. God chose him, right? And not only did God choose him, what's crazy to think about is this, that God created him for that purpose, God created him specifically for that purpose. We might sit there and go, wait a minute. I didn't choose Adam to represent me. It's not fair. It's not my choice. Yes, it's not your choice. But here's the thing. God who loves you more than you could ask or imagine. God who is omniscient and knows everything perfectly, knows exactly what you need better than you do. And he chose him. And we know from scriptures and we know from experience that his choices are for our good and for his glory. We may not have chosen, but God created him for this purpose. God knows what is best. In the same way that he chose Adam, he also chose Jesus to represent us, right? Look at what it says in verse 6 of Romans chapter 5. So when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love what it says there in verse 6. When we were without strength in due time, God took the initiative. God chose Jesus to represent us. And he took all of our sin and placed it upon him. And then Jesus stood before God the Father as our representative. And I'm so thankful that he has done that. Amen? In the same way, he also chose Adam to be our representative. And then in verses 13 and 14, Paul's going to use those verses to kind of back up or backstop his statement in verse 12 that through one man sin came into the world and sin came death and and death spread to all men for all have sinned. And he says, for until the law, sin was in the world. So before the law ever came about, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Wait a minute. 
Didn't he just say in verse 13 that sin is not imputed when there, there is no law? And I remember from chapter 14 or chapter 4, verse 15, where it said that where there is no law, there is no sin. So you're telling me that between Adam and Moses, that, there, that sin existed even when the law wasn't given? Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what he's saying. In fact, that 2,500 year period between Adam and Moses, sin still existed. Remember why the law was given. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, it, was, it tells us that the law was given to define sin. It wasn't like recently we've experienced in, in our state, like, you know, you have high-capacity magazines, and all of a sudden, one day, you're a felon, right? They, they make a law and go, oh, by the way, you're a felon now if you have high-capacity magazines, right? It wasn't like that. What it was is more like this. The law turned the light on so that the world and humanity could see that what they're doing is an offense to God. It was always an offense to God. And now God just finally says, oh, by the way, hey, what you're doing right here, that's a sin. What you're doing here, that's a sin. What you're doing up here, that's called sin. What you're doing here, sin. And what you're doing here, that's an offense to God. So the law didn't create sin. It just turned the lights on. It defined it. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 24 tells us the purpose of the law was to teach humanity that we are sinners in desperate need of a savior. Not that we became sinners after the law was uh, instituted, but that we were, that we are, and that we continue to be. Therefore, we need to be saved. In chapter 5 verse 20, it tells us it was given to promote the knowledge of sin. So again, it wasn't that sin did not exist. It was that the law turned the lights on so that the shadow of darkness could be banished so that our deeds may be clearly seen as it tells us in John chapter 3 verse 21 so that we could see that we are guilty sinners in light of the glory of God. I'm reminded of a story by the late J. Vernon McGee. He tells a story one day he went out hunting and he was caught in a thunderstorm and it was raining like a banshee. And so he's trying to find a place to, to hide out. And so he sees a cave. And so he runs into this cave and he hunkers down and he's trying to wait out this storm. And he's cold and he's wet and he decides, hey, I'm going to start a fire to warm myself up and to dry my clothes. And as soon as he starts that fire and the light illuminates the cave, he looks over and he realizes that he's in the den of a, he's in a rattlesnake's den. So what do you think he did? He ran for his life, right? He ran for his life. Was it the fact that the light then produced the snakes? No, the snakes had already been there. The light just showed what already existed. And that's exactly what the law has done. It, it didn't create sin, but it shone the light on the reality that we are sinners and we need to be saved. So in verses 13 and 14, Paul contends that the very fact that people died between that 2,500-year period of Adam and Moses, it proves that sin reigned in the lives of humanity. And the result of that was the death of people between Adam and Moses. Warren Worsby says this, we know that all men die. Death is a result of disobeying the law. The general result demands a general cause. What is that cause? It can only be one thing. 
the disobedience of Adam. And when Adam sinned, he ultimately died, and all of his descendants died, Genesis chapter 5. Yet the law had not yet been given. Conclusion, I love how he says that. Conclusion? They all died because of Adam's sin. Because all have sinned, Romans 5.12 means, all have sinned in Adam's sin. John Stott says this, that Paul meant all sinned in and through Adam and therefore all died. Although theologically difficult is surely exegetically correct. And so at this point in verses 12 through 14, we can summarize this section this way. In order to accomplish this, accomplish what we might say, accomplish the fact that God says that all men can be reconciled and justified through Christ by faith, in order to accomplish this, Christ has now ushered in a new life-giving union that is far more powerful than the sin and death-giving union that Adam brought. And then he begins to, to back up this argument to prove his point that justification and reconciliation can be had in Christ through faith by giving us a series of contrasts, what Adam has done versus what Christ has done. Verse 15, he compares the, the offense versus the free gift. But the free gift is not like the offense, he says, verse 15, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Again, John Stott says this, it is this enormous disparity which Paul elaborates in the rest of the verse. If the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and consequent gift overflow in rich, undeserved abundance? <clears throat> Sorry, I just lost my spot. To the many. Adam's trespass was an offense to God. It was a deviation from all that God had previously and clearly shown him. And that brought condemnation and death to many. In contrast, the free gift of God's grace through one man, Jesus Christ, makes justification and life abound to many. In verse 16, he contrasts Adam's sin and Christ's obedience. And the gift is not like that which came through the one man who sinned. For the judgment which came from one man's uh, offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many, from many offenses resulted in justification. So Paul is saying that Adam's uh, sin brought judgment and condemnation, but Christ's work upon the cross brings justification. And it isn't like we're comparing apples to apples here. We need to understand that. It's more like we're comparing one apple to the entire worldwide apple industry. That's the difference here, right? They are diametrically different. Charles E.B. Cranfield, a British minister and theologian, I love what he says here. He says, the graciousness of God's work in Christ becomes all the more evident when one considers the number of sins taken into consideration in each respective action. That one single misdeed should be um, answered by judgment, this is perfectly understandable. That the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift. This is the miracle of miracles, utterly beyond human comprehension. So what does that mean for us? It means this, that when Adam sinned, he was declared unrighteous 
and condemned. And we, in turn, inherited that same status. But when a sinner trusts Christ, he is declared righteous and justified. What Christ has accomplished for us is much, much more than whatever we inherited from Adam. Verse 17, he contrasts death and life. For if by one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. If we go back to Genesis chapter 5, you're going to read through that entire chapter and you're going to see a phrase repeated a whole bunch of times. In fact, eight times you hear this phrase repeated. And he died. Eight times. It goes like this. So-and-so lived so many years and he had sons and daughters and he died. And then so-and-so lived so many years and he had sons and daughters, but he died. And then so-and-so lived so many years and had sons and daughters, and guess what? He died. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says it's appointed for man to die and then stand before God in judgment. And Paul's point is this, because sin is reigning in the lives of men, death also reigns. He says that death reigned as king because of Adam. But now believers, because of what Jesus has accomplished upon the cross, believers now reign in life through Christ. I think it's important that we Don't skip over that. Notice what it says, that we reign. Those of us who experience the abundance of grace and righteousness, we reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Warren Wearsby says, in Adam, we lost our kingship. But in Jesus Christ, we reign as kings. And we reign much more. Our spiritual reign is far greater than Adam's earthly reign. For we share abundance of grace and the gift of of righteousness. In Adam, we lost our kingship, but Jesus has ushered in a new kingdom, a kingdom that's marked by the abundance of righteousness, peace, and joy, as it tells us in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. And so Paul has been contrasting the work of Adam and the work of Christ. And he's been using these phrases, not like, and much more to prove his point. And now in verses 18 through 21, he shifts from contrasting to highlighting the parallels between the two, and he uses words like so as and even so. Look what it says in verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, or likewise, Through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. You guys see the parallels there? We have one offense and one righteous act. Condemnation, justification. All men in Adam and all men in Christ. Robert Munt says context is, indicates that Paul was comparing the fate of those who were in Adam, the position of all by virtue of their birth into the human race, and the blessings of those who are in Christ, the position of all who have responded in faith. 
And so just as sin brought condemnation to all, so also did one righteous act bring justification to all. Just as condemnation spread to all, so also is the divine acquittal offered to all. In verse 19, he parallels disobedience and obedience, how Adam disobeyed God and made us all sinners, but how Christ's obedience um, has now made us righteous through faith in him. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also, there's those words again, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Christ's sacrifice on the cross has made justification possible for us. And this is the thing that we need to understand. We've been talking about justification for weeks, right? You keep hearing that word, oh, come on, not justification again, right? But we need to understand that justification isn't just our legal standing before God, just as if we've never sinned, but it's more than that. It speaks of a result of a certain kind of life a certain kind of life. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, Paul tells us that what Jesus has done has resulted in the justification of our life. And that parallels verse 19, where it says that he's made that life righteous. It's not just that we are as if we've never sinned, but there's this transaction that takes place a transformation that takes place. What does it tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17? Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, right? The old life, the old self, Paul would even say this. He said, listen, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who now lives within me. And the life that I now live by faith, I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That verse tells us there's a change from who he used to be to who he is now in Christ. It is an internal change. It's an external change, right? And so he says, we have been justified. The life that we've been given is justified, made righteous, And so it's speaking to the reality that there's a change. Robert Munt says the righteousness of which Paul spoke is a right standing before God. It is imputed, there's that word again, right? It's accounted to us by God as a result of faith. Righteousness as conduct, sanctification, he's gonna deal with that in chapters six through eight. But here's the thing, growth in holiness is the proof Growth in holiness is the proof that righteousness by faith has in fact been imputed. So what is he saying? He's saying that there needs to be a change. There needs to be a transformation. That transformative evidence is proof that righteousness has been imputed, that you have been saved that you do stand before God now just as if you have never sinned. He goes on and says, by definition, life is growth. And where there is no growth, there is no life. In other words, our justification is the result of a living union with Christ. 
And this union ought to result in a new kind of life, a righteous life, a life of obedience to Christ. Our union with Adam made us sinners, but our union with Christ enables us to reign in life, to live differently, to live distinctly, to live triumphantly, to live confidently, to live victoriously. Amen? Verse 20 says, moreover, the law entered that entered that the defense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's grace to humanity is far greater than humanity's rebellion against God. The English translation, I think, does a disservice to us. How they translate it is, is inadequate to say the least. When Paul says where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, it literally should say grace super abounded. Grace super abounded. God's super abounding grace met the demands of the law when Christ died. Sorry, I'm getting a phone call. <laughs> yes, Lord. God's superabounding grace met the demands of the law when Christ died, and then it supplied what the law could never supply. Salvation, forgiveness, favor, justification, redemption, reconciliation, adoption, love, acceptance. That's what Jesus accomplished upon the cross for us. Where once sin had reigned and all mankind had faced death, now grace reigns through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A couple of weeks ago, Rory had a sermon, and in fact, Ron Matthews and I were just kind of joking about it. Like he had a, It was titled, Dead Men Walking. And now Paul says, hey, we're no longer dead men walking. We're live men and women walking. We are free men and women walking. Douglas Moose said, in other words, while we deserve condemnation for all have sinned, we are freely given righteousness and life. It is this gratuitous element on the side of Christ's work that enables Paul to celebrate the how much more of reigning in life And that gives to every believer absolute assurance for the life to come. Martin Luther King Jr. once said this, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Paul's whole apologetic is summed up in verses 20 and 21, where he says, in the new creation, no longer sin reigns, but grace does. In the new creation, death no longer reigns, but life does. And we who are in Christ reign in life through him. You can go ahead and close your your Bibles and put your things aside. I'm going to have the worship team start coming up here as we come to a close, as we try and prepare our hearts to respond to the Lord. I just have a few closing thoughts here. At the cross on a human level, we 
had the opportunity to see the worst that sin can do. And all of us are part of that. People ask, I remember we were in the Garden of Eden uh, this last fall um, in Israel. I'm sorry, the Garden of Eden. <laughs> we were in the Garden of Eden. It was wonderful. There's fruit everywhere. We were in the, the tomb and uh, the garden tomb. That's where we were. One day we will be with the Lord in a perfect setting. But we were in the garden tomb and the person asked, who, who killed Jesus? And the natural response is, oh, the Romans did. No, the Romans didn't. The Jews did. No, the Jews didn't. Who killed Jesus? I did. My sin put him there. It's not even enough for me to say, we did, because it kind of gets me off the hook. I'm all, we, no, it was my sin that put him there. And so at the cross, we get to see the worst that sin could ever do in crucifying our Lord. But at the cross, we also see the most that sin can do cannot thwart God's salvation. At the cross, grace overwhelms sin. Life triumphs over death. In the first Adam, the first Adam is not the last word to humanity. The second Adam is. The one perfect federal head, Jesus Christ himself, he is the last word. Timothy Keller says this, there is no hope at all without him. But there is certain hope with and in him. Let me say that again. There is no hope at all without him, but there is certain hope with and in him. One commentator said this, that Paul paints with broad brushstrokes a bird's eye picture of the history of redemption. His canvas is human history and the scope is universal. All people, Paul teaches, stand in relationship to one of two men whose actions determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to them. Either one belongs to Adam and is under the sentence of death because of his sin and disobedience or one belongs to Christ and is assured of eternal life because of his righteous act and obedience. Romans chapter 5 is the theological keystone or cornerstone of soteriology. And soteriology is the study of salvation, right? Studying salvation. So this chapter, Romans chapter 5, is the cornerstone of our understanding of how we're saved. In verses 6 through 11, Paul teaches substitution, that Christ died upon the cross for our sins. In verses 12 through 21, he teaches identification that believers are in Christ and can live in victory over sin. So this morning, the question we need to ask ourselves is simply this. Are we in Adam? Or are you in Christ? Am I in Adam? Or am I in Christ? If I'm in Adam, then sin and death still reigns over my life. And I'm under condemnation. But if I am in Christ, then grace reigns over my life. And I can reign in life through him. And sin no longer has its hold upon me. So again, this morning, I ask the question, are you in Christ? 
or are you in Adam? Let's stand together and we'll pray and worship and end our time together in response to the Lord. Father, this morning, we just thank you for your word. Lord, all morning long, a song has been going through my head. It's an old song. Word of God, speak. Pour down like rain, washing my eyes to see your majesty. Lord, we pray that your word would speak to our hearts today. And Lord, as we ponder the question, am I in Adam or am I in Christ? And we look at our lives and we recognize that there's no growth, then maybe there's something that needs to be done in our hearts, in our lives. We may be wearing the jersey but we perhaps may not be part of the team. We're on the outskirts. We're hovering around the outside, but we're not participating in this thing called Christianity, in this journey with Christ. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here today who's in that place, I pray that you would speak to their hearts and just the way that you know how to do it and just your tender sweet, gentle way that you would bring a holy conviction and with that conviction would come an understanding of your heart for them. And that you would grant to them the gift of repentance, the fruit of repentance. that they would experience the washing away of their sin and the filling of their hearts with the Holy Spirit, that they would know that they know that they're in Christ. Not just because they think they are, but because they know that they are. And there would be a transformation of their life that they might be able to experience the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. That they might be able to live the abundant life that you have for them in Christ and reign in life through Christ in faith today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the darkness we were waiting Without hope and without light Till from heaven you came running There was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophet to the virgin came the world from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt 
Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you guys this week to go back and read through chapter 5. Chapter 5 is such an amazing chapter, and we can hear the heart of Paul as he is writing this letter. There's a, a part of him as he's dealing with this deep, profound theological truths, yet it causes within him it to this, this spirit of worship to erupt. 
He says things like, much more than that, and even more than that, and even still. And you can see him building his, his emotion and his worship upon every, every um, specific thing he brings up, every point he gives. Oh, but even more than that, this is what God has done. Yes, the black shadow of sin, but the bright glory of what Christ has accomplished. And so this week, I encourage you to go back and read through chapter five and then just ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart and understanding to be able to rejoice in the life that Christ has given you and to live and walk in victory this week, amen? To run the race that's been set before you. I have my running shoes on today, right? My feet were hurting this morning. I thought, I'm not going to wear some some difficult and uncomfortable shoes. I'm going to wear my running shoes. Because why? We're in a race. And we're going to run the race with endurance that's been set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Let's run for him this week. Amen.